are going to need to come down tonight so if you are available available to, to stay around and help out afterwards we are hoping I think to keep most of them and reuse them so if you speak to Beth or Dawn before you start pulling things off the wall uh, just so we can make sure they're stored in a way that it's not going to ruin them that would be great but we're gathered here this evening to hear from God as he speaks to us through his living word Timothy writes that all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And to better appreciate the significance of those verses, we need to remember the God who spoke them. So we're going to start this evening by singing, Behold Our God. Yeah. 
Morris is going to come and pray with us now. Um, Kevin has already mentioned the living word of God, and before we pray, I'd just like to read a few verses that encourages us tonight. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening in the name of Jesus. And we ask you to fill us with reverence and awe as we approach you in that name which is above every name. Would you help us all to pray, lifting up our hearts in loving praise to you, loving praise which comes from thankful hearts for your grace to us in Jesus. We thank you for the gospel, the message which was preached by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost which touched and changed many lives. And as your children, we remember the day and the days when we put our hope and trust in Jesus. We thank you for giving us so much through our salvation, our sins forgiven, and the promise of heaven before us. Loving Father God, thank you for the revelation of who you are in the person of your son, Jesus. We pray for any this evening who are here and do not know you, would you grant them to hear your voice, speaking to them to bring a saving knowledge of Jesus to their hearts and minds. We pray also for the children who came to the Holiday Bible Club, asking that they would want to know more, giving them an understanding and love for Jesus, which will change their lives. We would also pray for those who are mourning the loss of loved ones. We think of the families of Jill Elliot, Pat Salt, Les Ratherham and Sue Bradley. Would you continue to bring them comfort according to their needs? May each one who came to those funerals be reminded of the gospel which was preached and those who do not know you for, to seek forgiveness and help in time of need. 
We pray this week for Steve as he will take the service on Tuesday for our sister Sue Bradley. We ask that you will speak to those in Sue's family who do not know you. Above all, we give you thanks for Sue's confidence in Christ and pray that her witness will indeed speak to her family. We pray for all our brothers and sisters in this fellowship, wherever they are, here tonight or at home or on holiday. May we all grow in love and service to one another, seeking you daily as children of the living God and being filled with joy. Again, we remember our pastors, Tim and Steve. Would you bless and encourage them, giving them wisdom as they bring your word to us. Guard and guide them and their families as they seek to serve you. Finally, Father, we pray for Kevin as he preaches this evening. Fill him with your spirit and bless his ministry to himself and to us. May Christ be known amongst us once again this evening. In the Saviour's name. Amen. As we look at Acts chapter 4 this evening, we're going to be faced with the futility of opposing the gospel. And our reading this evening reminds us that the world has rebelled against God for as long as it's existed but that it's never had a hope of succeeding. We're going to read Psalm 2. Um, it's page 543 in the Blue Bibles and 841 in the large print. And Darren's going to come and read that to us. Psalm 2, beginning at verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king. On, on Zion, my holy mountain. I will, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like, pot, like potter, pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take their refuge in him. This is God's word. Jesus is the anointed one in Psalm 2. And we're going to see this evening that all of God's purposes centre around him. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And we're going to reflect on that briefly now as we sing no other name but the name of Jesus.
Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we praise you because you are infinitely and intrinsically worthy of praise. You are the creator of all things, the sovereign Lord of history. All things conform to your will. And Lord, we praise you for your great and majestic power. We thank you, Lord, that you've deigned to lavish your grace on us, that despite our sinfulness and our rebellion, you sent your only son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place. We've done nothing to deserve it, Lord, but you've chosen us and saved us all the same. We pray that as we look at your word this evening, you would speak to us through it. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord. Make us receptive and willing not just to hear, but to respond and to put into practice what we hear. We ask that you would grant us the gift of your Holy Spirit and that you would bless us this evening. Amen. As we come to Acts chapter 4 this evening, it'll be helpful to understand what took place immediately beforehand. Acts, as a book, is believed to have been written by Luke and follows on from his gospel account. It appears that Luke wanted to show how the gospel work continued through the church empowered by the Holy Spirit after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven. And Steve has really helpfully preached on Acts chapter 2 over the last few weeks, giving us an insight into the gifting of the Holy Spirit to the disciples at Pentecost and into Pete's sermon to the crowds immediately afterwards. The Holy Spirit continued there the work of building the church. We heard this morning, didn't we, that Jesus is Lord. And it's a theme that continues into our passage this evening. Chapter 2, which I think Steve will carry on with in a couple of weeks, ends with an insight into how the early church lived together. A beautiful picture of God-centered worship, selfless fellowship, and joy, as God added to their numbers daily. Chapters 3 and 4 then move on a little bit in time, and they focus on the church's first experience of persecution. And while our translations have split chapters 3 and 4 into the two separate chapters, Arguably, they're part of the same account. And in chapter 3, which we're not going to read this evening, um, during one of their regular visits to the temple, Peter and John encounter a lame man begging. They had no money to give, but instead, they were the Holy Spirit's instrument in the beggar's miraculous healing. Peter then took the opportunity to tell the onlookers how and by whose power that beggar had been healed, delivering his second sermon in Acts. We join the story at the beginning of chapter 4 as the religious leaders arrive on the scene. Uh, We're going to read Acts 4, verses 1 to 31, which is page 1095 in the Blue Bibles and 1689 in the large print. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and, because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, 
John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which they might be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power had and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting, meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. How do you feel after reading that passage? I have to confess that my reaction tends to be a combination of awe and then feeling very, very small. I think we have a natural tendency, don't we, to compare ourselves to others. 
And when we face up to the likes of Peter, Stephen, and Paul, we might not bear up all that well. I know that I don't. However, my hope is that as we go through these verses together, we will all find ourselves encouraged and emboldened as we consider the forces at work in this encounter. As we investigate, we will encounter spirit-filled witness. And the passage we're going to look at breaks down into three sections. In verses 1 to 7, we see that the gospel is offensive in every culture and every time. Then in verses 8 to 22, we're reminded of the indomitable power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, verses 23 to 31 encourage us to be emboldened by our sovereign Lord. The religious leaders then. We read in verse 2 that they rushed to the scene of the healing, greatly disturbed. And the word translated here as came up to literally means they set upon. It's really confrontation language. And you might wonder, what do they have to be upset about? Surely a miraculous healing like this should be the cause of a celebration, not concern. And it's only as we look at verse 2 when we see Luke's insight that we begin to understand. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The reasons become clear. It's not the miracle in principle they object to. It's the teaching that the healing accompanies. This is reinforced later in the passage when the Sanhedrin try and shut the apostles down, isn't it? In verses 17 and 18, the apostles are commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. The leaders aren't concerned about the miracle, except that it gives weight to the teaching. And a bit of historical context will help us understand why. In verse 1, we see that this group of leaders consists of the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were a prominent sect in Judaism, generally very wealthy and powerful. And they'd established a relatively good relationship with the occupying Roman force. And it appears to have played a part in their rejection of Jesus in the first case, and now in the apostles. One of the men, part of this group, mentioned in verse 6, Caiaphas, is also mentioned in the Gospel of John in chapter 11. And then, as it appears now, he was concerned with their relationship with the Romans. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And the Sadducees held a great deal of influence over the priesthood. The chief priests were selected from their number. We saw that at one point Caiaphas was high priest. And the captain of the temple guard, who's mentioned in that first group, would also have had close ties to the Sadducees, as he would have been chosen from the high priest's family. They were Jerusalem's power family, if you will, having been uh, chosen in that way. They built their status and their wealth on the business of keeping Rome happy. In verse 5, they refer to the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was, would be the equivalent of our Supreme Court. Everyone who was there 
either sat within the Sadducees' sphere of influence or, like the elders and the civic leaders, shared a common interest in preserving the status quo. By continuing to preach the gospel, Peter and John undermined the building blocks of Israelite society. We've seen recently in Deuteronomy, haven't we, how Judaism as a religion affected every aspect of Israelite life. To demolish it, as it certainly seemed to threaten it, was to threaten, to de- was to threaten the stability of Jerusalem, risking a harsh response from Rome and consequently endangering the status and wealth of the ruling elite. Additionally, by teaching the resurrection, the two men were challenging the authority of the Sadducees as they held that there was no resurrection of the dead. The council asked Peter and John in verse 7, by what power or what name do you do this? And the word power here could be translated as authority. And equally, the second part of the question asks who, what name, gave the two apostles the authority to preach their message? The implication here is that the Sadducees considered themselves the authority on religious teaching in Israel. So Peter and John threatened Israel's political and spiritual stability. But the gospel presents a far more fundamental threat than that. In Hebrews chapter 8, Jesus is described as the high priest of a better covenant. It depicts the first covenant which forms the basis of Judaism, as having failed, having been broken by the nation of Israel. In verse 13, it says, In speaking of a new covenant, he, that is Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Israel proudly considered itself the children of God. Their relationship to God was, in their mind, unique. The Old Testament is full of passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7 where it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Or in 2 Samuel chapter 7 it says, Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. They had been God's chosen people. And they lived their life in a certain way, a way that had been honed and refined by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In contrast, Jesus spent time with tax collectors and Samaritans. He called his church to make disciples of people of all nations. He redefined what it meant to be a child of God as well as what it takes to become one. There's also something of a more cynical concern. Gradually, since the foundation of Israel as a nation, the religious leaders had secured for themselves a sweet spot in society. Their interpretation of the law had made them appear particularly pious, while simultaneously allowing them to accumulate great wealth and power. However, throughout his ministry, Jesus had condemned their hypocrisy. Over and over again, he exposed their sinful hearts and made it clear that there was no room in his renewed kingdom for self-centered greed and pride. For example, in Matthew chapter 23, it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his disciples that he had come to fulfill the Old Testament, not to eliminate it, but to bring about the fullness of what it could only imitate. In Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Jewish leaders vehemently resisted the gospel because it exposed all their heart's sinfulness, clinging to the identity they wanted rather than that which they were being given. And despite the time and the distance between us, our culture is not so different, is it? People place their identities in their spirituality or their gender or their sexuality or in their tolerance. I was sat in a lecture recently where several people were asked about their religious beliefs. And every single person who was asked, regardless of what their answer was, finished with some variation of, but I respect people who believe something different to me. Similarly, I listened to a psychologist at a conference several years ago who explained how opinion has become so conflated with identity that to disagree with someone now is often paramount to a personal attack on them. Our media tells us that we define our own worth, while social media suggests that our value is determined by what brands we wear, what cars we drive, or what we look like. And if we can't create or maintain the identity we want, we fake it. At work, I see young men all the time spending a fortune renting cars they can't afford to own so they can take pictures and take them on nights out. In 2019, Instagram introduced so-called beauty filters, which edit users' photos, changing everything from the shape of their features to the tone of their skin. We live in an age where companies and celebrities make fortunes by setting impossible standards and then selling ways in which we can try and reach them. It should come as no surprise to us then that when people react badly to the gospel, in a culture where criticism is unacceptable, the truth that we are intrinsically offensive to God, that we're not good enough and we can do nothing about it, that the only solution was for the perfect Son of God to die in our place, that truth can never be received well. And in a world filled with a thousand groups grasping and competing for their rights above any others, the reality that we're not the center of the universe, that we were created to serve and worship the one God to the exclusion of all else, must be unwelcome. Thankfully, we're not left on our own to proclaim the gospel that offends. Like Peter and John, we are equipped with the indomitable power of the Holy Spirit. And if we go to the passage, by the end of verse 7, you'd be forgiven for being a little bit concerned for Peter and John. The teachers of the law have seized them, locking them away for the night to prevent any more spreading of this message, before hauling them in front of their highest court for an inquest into their activities. However, before we get into what happened at that interrogation, just notice verse 4. But many who heard the message believed. Even before the Sanhedrin's heads had hit their pillows, the body of believers has nearly doubled in size. It's a sign of things to come that this, the believers' first persecution, did not succeed in dampening the call of the gospel. The next day, 
we see that a who's who of VIPs gather to the nation's Supreme Court to interrogate Peter and John. And whatever reaction the Sanhedrin might have expected from Peter and John, they don't get it. We've already seen that their line of questioning suggests that they considered themselves the gatekeepers of biblical teaching. But we're about to see Peter turn their trial on its head. And as we do, Luke wants us to be under no illusions who the driving force behind the impending speech is. In verse 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. The language here points us back to Luke's gospel, where Jesus tells his disciples, When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And as Peter responds, he speaks the words given to him by the Spirit as he's filled with wisdom for the impending task, defending the gospel before the Supreme Court. And the assembly, they phrase their question, by what power or name did you do this? To make it relate to the miracle rather than the teaching. Perhaps they were acting under the guise of wanting to rule out witchcraft or the occult. Peter, however, addresses the heart of the issue launching straight into a summary of his sermons in chapter 2 and 3. And as we read verses 9 to 12, I think we're supposed to start questioning who exactly is on trial here. In verse 9, Peter, ironically, questions the leader's motives before launching into his sermon. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness, the words translated act of kindness usually referred to an act of service that would have been well rewarded and received not something that be the subject of a judicial inquiry. And then in verse 10, there is a change in Peter's tone that I think is supposed to stand out to us. While his initial address in verses 8 and 9 is very respectful, he uses legal language as he establishes the man's disability and acknowledges the scope of the questions that are being asked. Whereas in verse 10, he changes tack, going on the offensive. Notice that he only gives the man the smallest of mentions. The miracle's purpose was to support the teaching, not to be an event in itself. So, as he answers the question of the Sanhedrin in verse 10, Peter proclaims his Lord to the leaders of the nation. It is by the name, that is the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, that this miracle has taken place. Peter is clear that this is the same Jesus that those religious leaders had crucified. Suddenly, the supposed gatekeepers of true worship are on the back foot. As Peter turns the tables on them, Jesus, the one they rejected, has been vindicated by God who raised him from the dead. Using language that echoes the Old Testament prophets, Peter confronts them with a dilemma. If Jesus was the power that healed that man, then Jesus is alive and his claims in the Gospels have been validated by God. And if Jesus truly is the Son of God, then the crucifixion wasn't a righteous execution, but a murder. And notice that Peter, being fully aware of the real reason for his and John's arrest, doesn't shy away from his guilt. He has proclaimed Jesus, and he continues to do so. But he challenges the leaders that they are more guilty, guilty before God of Jesus' murder. And he supports his claim by quoting Psalm 118, arguing that the council fulfilled that prophecy 
when they rejected Jesus. And there's a wordplay here that underlines Peter's point. The word in verse 9 that's translated in our Bibles as healed literally means saved. And it's the same word used again in verse 12. The healing of the cripple points to the fact that Jesus saves. And Peter then concludes his message in verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So if any of the Jews listening were left in doubt, Peter's removed it. They cannot rely on their heritage anymore, or the sacrifices, or their extra strict set of rules. They've pulled no punches. Jesus is God's chosen conduit for his grace. He is the only exclusive way to salvation. He is the one name given to all humankind. Nothing and nobody and nowhere can offer any kind of alternative. And the council are stunned. Peter and John have displayed a boldness and a skill that they have no right to possess. They've just rejected the authority of Judaism's chief council and declared it culpable for Jesus' death. Despite the religious leader's previous willingness to crucify Jesus, Peter and John, Peter and John boldly profess the one they serve. What's more, the council recognized that neither Peter nor John have had any kind of formal training to explain their eloquence. They weren't priests, they weren't Sadducees or Pharisees. They had no business putting together such a nuanced, well-grounded argument. However, it doesn't escape their notice that Peter and John had been with Jesus, and that is the only explanation for their ability. We have the benefit of verse 8, and it helps us understand it better. Jesus was present with the men through the Holy Spirit, giving them the words to speak. So while the leaders are astonished at the courage and cognizance on display, they were flummoxed by how to respond. The man who was healed had been a regular beggar, working in a prominent spot in the city. As such, he was well known in the city as a cripple, and now he stands there healed in front of them. There was no denying that something incredible had taken place. In verse 14, the phrase, there was nothing they could say, recalls Luke 21, verse 15, where Jesus says to his disciples, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. The Sanhedrin have no choice but to withdraw and discuss. What has happened is indisputable. Who did it and why is being boldly proclaimed by the two apostles. To embrace Peter and John's profession would be to invite ruin. So the leaders are faced with a dilemma in how to react. And the council betrays their hard-heartedness here as they respond in verse 16. They admit that they are faced with a notable sign. And that's a phrase that definitively attributes that healing to God himself. And yet, their preferred action would be to deny it altogether. It appears that no amount of evidence will be sufficient to turn their hearts towards Jesus. However, outright denial is impossible, given that the beggar is living, walking proof of the healing. Instead, the leaders look for ways to limit the damage. The best they can hope for is that the gospel doesn't spread any further. And their solution smacks of desperation. 
The Sanhedrin warns, literally threatens the disciples not to speak or teach of Jesus any longer. And the phrase has a legal connotation. The suggestion is that the apostles would open themselves up to prosecution if they ignore the court's instruction. The irony is they're trying to intimidate Peter and John using an authority that the men have already rejected. And predictably, despite the warnings and threats, Peter and John are unmoved. They declare that they will not stop in the strongest possible terms. Their words refer to a kind of compulsion. They cannot help but to speak of Jesus. Once again, the men draw the contrast between the court's authority and God's. Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him? The Sanhedrin is impotent, unable to do anything of consequence. Everybody is aware of what has happened. The miracle combined with Peter's sermon has caused all the people to praise God. To punish Peter and John now would be to suggest that the healing itself was negative. Political and social suicide. So, for now, Peter and John walk free. And Luke ends this section in verse 22 with a reminder of what a wonderful thing the healing was. That man had been crippled his whole life. It's also a final condemnation of the religious leaders. Questioning again how they could be so hard-hearted as to refuse to acknowledge what God has done through those apostles. With the Spirit's help, Peter and John stood firm in the face of the church's first taste of prosecution. Undoubtedly, the memory of Jesus' crucifixion was fresh in their memories as they faithfully proclaimed his gospel to their enemies. A gospel that the religious courts of the time had no answer to. Now, Christians, if you're anything like me, there are several traps we can fall into when we read this passage, all of which are symptoms of one fundamental error. We may overestimate the apostles and come away discouraged, feeling like we could never measure up to their steadfast faithfulness. And we can use that kind of defeatist attitude to justify a lack of effort on our part. After all, if we have no hope in speaking as boldly or as skillfully as they did, what's the point in trying? Whilst we probably don't express our feelings in those terms, I imagine that most of us have let an opportunity to speak of Jesus pass us by, rather than risk saying the wrong thing. We might also underestimate the opposition of the Sanhedrin. It's easy, I think, with the benefit of hindsight and the rest of the Bible and history after that, to feel like the gospel's victory over Jewish resistance was an obvious result even then. And in contrast, we might believe that victory over rejection of Jesus in our culture is far from granted. However, in both cases, the real issue is that we've forgotten the work of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. The gospel hasn't changed and neither has God. Our faith is as irrefutable now as it was in Peter's day, and the promise of Luke chapter 1 still stands. The accounts of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and countless other Christians through the ages show us that the promise does not mean safety for every believer. In fact, the lives and deaths of the church fathers would suggest that Acts chapter 4 is the exception rather than the rule. But the truth remains. We will be equipped 
to stand firm in service to God in every situation, proclaiming Jesus effectively, even though we might not feel like it and we might never see the effect of it. It doesn't change the promises we have in front of us. But perhaps you aren't a Christian tonight. Maybe you don't believe that there's forgiveness and resurrection in Jesus Christ. If that's you, please, 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 please go and consider the evidence. I mean, really consider it. I am 100% confident that there is no better explanation for the world we live in than the one presented in the Bible. And there is no better solution to the problems of this world than those of grace through Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel doesn't just oppose the messages of our culture. It offers a better alternative. Yes, Jesus tells us that our identity isn't in any of those things I listed. And no, our worth is not in our looks or our bank balance. But our identity is in Christ because he died to restore us from our brokenness. He suffered and bled and died on a cross to buy us from lives spent chasing purposes that instead we can live as we were designed to do. In joyful service to the God who made us and loves us as our Father. We are worth far, far more than we could ever imagine or than any social media could tell us to. And we can be sure of that because Jesus, the perfect Son of God, considered us worth dying for. Our passage this evening ends with Peter and John returning home and it presents us with the church which responds by praying for boldness. Immediately on their release, Peter and John return to what verse 23 describes as their own people. The passage doesn't say exactly who they return to, but the phrase is used elsewhere to refer to friends, home and family. And as he concludes this section of Acts, Luke wants to show us that the body of believers responded to persecution and that they were sustained in it. Peter and John share their whole experience with the believers, reporting what was said, the threats and the potential consequences of further witnesses included. The concerning news drives the church straight to prayer. And there's a lesson for us in their response, because when we encounter difficulties, how rarely do we respond by immediately praying to the Lord for help? I know that I have a tendency to be impatient. When there's an issue, I feel that I need to go and start working on it right away. Praying just takes up time that I should spend trying to fix it. I lose sight of my dependence on God. I have to confess that even whilst writing this sermon, I fell into the trap of trying to get it done by my own strength and intellect, rather than approaching it in faithful dependence. Funnily enough, that didn't go particularly well for me. Brothers and sisters, we have to guard against that kind of attitude. And this next bit shows us how. The prayer that they pray in verses 24 to 30 split up into three parts. First, in verses 24 to 30, remembering God's sovereignty. It begins with a reminder of why they are praying. They are coming to the sovereign Lord for help. The title refers to absolute, unassailable authority. The kind of authority that's quite unpopular today. However, the sovereign Lord isn't some kind of despot who's come to power through violence and coercion. 
As the church reminds themselves in the second part of verse 24, God is Lord by virtue of his position as creator and designer of the entire universe. Of course he rules. He set the stars in place. In Psalm 8, the author writes, when I considered the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Not only did God create the universe, but in Jesus, he also sustains all things. In Hebrews, we see that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Remembering the sovereign nature of God our Father, it makes sense to turn to him in prayer. When we're faced with difficulty and tempted to try and battle through on our own, we have to remember our Lord's sovereign power. Having done so, we have to recognize that God has a sovereign plan. The church recognized it by looking at the passage that Darren read to us earlier. They quote a little bit of it, which establishes the pattern of God's rejection of God's anointed one. Rejection that's overcome by God's power. As they pray, they identify Jesus as the anointed one in verse 26, God's son installed as king. They notice that Herod and Pilate are the kings and rulers who rose up against him. And then verse 28 sets out the point of the section. The nations rage and the people plot in vain. All that they have managed to achieve is the plan that God declared years and years beforehand. If we subscribe to the description of a sovereign lord, as in verse 23 and 24, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? But isn't it a tremendous encouragement to know that we don't just have to take those words at face value? History verifies God's revelation about himself. And it's that certainty, that confidence in the Lord, both from what he says about himself and from what the history we know of proves, that then empowers the church to make their request. They ask for power to serve. The prayer concludes with a three-part request that brings us back full circle. They ask God to consider the threats made against them and to enable the church to speak with great boldness. And they ask that he would endorse their message through great signs and wonders. And verse 29 gives us an insight into the believer's priorities as they pray. Notice, they don't presume to ask for judgment or action from God in response to the Sanhedrin's threats. They bring the opposition to God and leave it there with him, trusting that he will do what's right. Their focus is elsewhere, on the proclamation of the gospel. They don't even begin to ask for safety or comfort, but only that God would equip them with the wisdom and courage to proclaim Christ well and that he would then confirm that message. Isn't that a challenge to us? How hard do we find it to relinquish our comfort? It's rare, isn't it, in our country that we'll face threats to our safety for professing Christ. While in some extreme cases we might lose our jobs or face legal action, the reality is that most of the time we risk nothing more than our reputation. Don't we get attached to it, though? We get comfortable in our workplaces, in our friendship groups, 
online. And once we've been established in a spot, and once we've been accepted by people, we can be very reluctant to relinquish that. At least I know I can. We should pray for ourselves and one another that God would not let us become so attached to our comfort that it would become a barrier to our witness. One of the best pieces of advice I was ever given on entering the workplace is that it's much harder to live for Christ after we have first been silent. Not that it's wrong to ask for safety or relief from hardship or even for comfort. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaks of asking God three times for relief from a trial he'd been facing. Equally, in Acts chapter 8, after Stephen's execution, the early church flees the persecution they're facing. The issue here is one of priorities. These verses haven't been included in the Bible to restrict us from asking God to protect us. Instead, their purpose is to show us what needs to be of first importance in our lives. We can enjoy the peace and prosperity that God's given us, but we must be careful that it never becomes more important to us than the progress of the gospel. Now, you might be reading this prayer and thinking that their requests seem familiar to us, and they are. God has already answered these kinds of prayers during chapters 3 and 4. As the church asked to be emboldened, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit as he spoke to the crowds and the Sanhedrin. And the beggar was healed as evidence of their teaching. So once again, we can be encouraged by the evidence that God does answer the prayers that are commended to us in this passage. However, the passage ends with God's response. The place they were meeting in is shaken, a sign of his presence. And their requests are met as they go forth and preach boldly the word of God. And just as they did, when we find that our message offends those we speak to, and we're faced with opposition as a result, we must turn to God in complete dependence, to the God who rules over all things. And we can do that with confidence, because he is the sovereign creator God who has already proven his capability to meet our needs. As we live for him, we need to be careful that we never allow the gospel to take anything less than first place in our lives. Instead, being willing to forego all things to proclaim the word boldly. So as we look to be gospel witnesses in our situations, we must expect to offend. Thankfully, when we do, we have a helper, the Holy Spirit on whom we can rely to equip us for every good deed. And when that offense turns to opposition, we come to a God who is in control, who will sustain us through all of our service and all of our trials. Before we turn to the Lord's table, we're going to ask God to fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit, according to God's will, helping us to endure as we serve him before we join him in eternal rest. We're going to sing, breathe on me, breath of God.
Please be seated. As we move into a new week, hopefully encouraged by what we've heard, we can also be encouraged by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. He lived a life of total commitment to God's salvation plan, faithfully proclaiming his purpose, depending on his father as he suffered and died for our sins. And he now sits in heaven as the deposit guaranteeing our place in his family. We can be encouraged as we take the bread and wine together and we use them as a reminder of what he's done. It's always helpful as we come around the Lord's table to remember that this is an institution given by our Lord Jesus. It's for Christians. And as we take part, we remember what Christ has done for us, dying in our place and paying for our sins. We also celebrate our position, saved and unified as a body of believers. And finally, we look forward to Jesus' return and to the final end to all pain and suffering. So if you've put your faith in Jesus, asking him to forgive your sins, and you're seeking to follow him, please join us as we take the bread and the wine. If that doesn't describe you, please don't be embarrassed to let the bread and wine pass you by. But please, watch and speak to us afterwards about what you see. Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians, and he said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given him thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll take a minute now to be quiet and to recognize in our hearts how we've fallen short in our witness this week and to seek God's forgiveness. Then I'll pray before the service come and give out the bread and we'll keep it and eat it together. Lord God, our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to die in our place. We thank you that despite our rejection and our rebellion, you made a way. Lord, we confess that even in the past week, we've done things that we shouldn't have and neglected to do things that we should. In act and word and in thought, we've sinned against you. We thank you that we have a freedom in Christ. Our sins have been paid for and we come to you as your children. We thank you that his body was broken for us. Amen.
give thanks for his body broken for us. The wine represents Jesus' body, spilled for us and washing us clean. Once again, as they hand it out, please keep it and we'll drink it together. saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's close by singing of the task before us and the great power at work in us to proclaim the Lord our Jesus Christ. Sing the task. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.